Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. It's just about having a crack. Everything is about just giving it a go. So like, I've built our business off the back of relationships like that with a multitude of people I have never had any correspondence with or have nothing to do with. So it's amazing. If you make your pitch compelling enough, it's amazing how people want to support. So this is kind of going back to that point before I was saying about how like, you know, choose to do something with the wind behind your back. So, uh, you know, when I'm out there talking about trying to solve the world's single use plastic crisis, it's a compelling um, kind of like project for people to get on board. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I want to send a quick shout out and thanks to Neon Treehouse, who last week became our major season sponsor. They're an amazing digital agency, so do check them out in our show notes. This week, I bring you my conversation with Josh Howard, who is CEO and founder at Single Use Ain't Sexy. What a name indeed. Single Use Ain't Sexy is Australia's revolutionary cleaning and personal care movement. Their cutting-edge Just Add Water products are designed to eradicate single-use plastic bottles. Each time someone becomes a new customer, it saves up to 25 single-use plastic bottles from going into landfill every year. For the purpose of full disclosure, Josh and I have been family friends for many years, and I've had his mum on the podcast many moons ago too. As I get older, I'm increasingly drawn to innovative solutions that can help us reduce plastic waste. I love Josh's approach to this, but equally love his irreverent and in-your-face approach to marketing. With key slogans including, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I used to be a bit of a tosser, there is much to like here. If you're a fan of what Josh is doing, you can support his crowdfunding campaign linked in the show notes. They've had $252,000 registered in the first 48 hours, which Josh tells me is kind of insane, and I was not expecting that, so it's a good start. In total, Josh anticipates raising around $500,000. So this was a fun and wide-ranging conversation recorded in person out of lockdown over matcha green tea with a mushroom supplement. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Josh as much as I did. Josh, welcome to Humans of Purpose. Wonderful to have you here. Thank you. It's just an honor and I'm really excited for this conversation, but uh, before I get too excited and burn myself out, I might just start by getting you to tell me a bit about your journey. Uh, into where we are today and sort of take me through the the timeline. Perfect. All right. So my name is Josh Howard. I'm the CEO and founder of Aussie sustainability brand Single Use Ain't Sexy. Um, we've developed these little dissolvable hand soap tablets, which I like to say are kind of like Barocca tablets, but for hand soap. They do appear that way. They look exactly like <laughs> that, except they're white, not orange. And you mix them with tap water in our reusable glass bottles. So We should just clarify that you should not try and drink them. Don't drink them and don't eat them, <laughs> uh, which is why we now have warning labels on our tablets. Do not be that guy or girl you, that you eats them. You needed to have warning labels. It's amazing. <laughs> what a world we live in. Yeah, better be safe than sorry. Um, and so you fill the bottles up with tap water, you drop the tablet in, it dissolves, and then you pump the solution out as a white foam that you wash your hands with. Then when you're done instead of chucking a single-use plastic soap bottle into landfill, you just fill the glass one back up with water, drop another tablet in, and the whole cycle starts again. So we turned one last week, so we've been around for a year. Happy birthday. Thank you, mate. Yeah. And we've saved up to 125,000 single-use plastic bottles from Aussie landfill now. So our whole business's mission 
is to make sustainability fun and sexy and cheeky and irreverent. So it's kind of like solving a serious issue, but in a fun way to engage people. That's an unbelievable intro. Can you backtrack a little bit and tell me about like, you know, how you got into this space and maybe a good jumping off point would be when did you realize that um, plastic waste was such a sort of burning issue that needed to be solved? It's a good question. And I really feel like a lot of us have this sense of eco-anxiety, which is this idea that the world's environmental problems are so dire that nothing that we do individually is going to be significant enough to make them better. And so it's almost like when you have a massive laundry list of to-dos and you just don't do any because you just freak out and you're like, I don't know where to start. And so for me, that came in the form of looking at single-use plastic around my house So there was a day probably about maybe 20 months ago now where I just saw my bin full of crap, just full of plastic bottles. And, you know, sometimes maybe if you're away for the weekend or you're staying at a friend's house and there's a really tangible amount of waste that you produce and you're like, oh, Jesus, how did we go through that much stuff? Did I do that? Yeah. (laughs) It was one of of those. Mm. And I looked at my bin and I just thought, "This this is mad. There's so many plastic bottles in here. Like they're never getting recycled. And then I thought, all right, this is happening in my place. It's happening next door. It's happening all across our suburb. It's happening all across the country. And so I thought, all right, what what can I do which combines my passion for creativity and marketing and entrepreneurship with my passion for trying to figure out ways of being more sustainable and helping other people do it as well? Very well said. Did you become obsessed with the problem? Yes, and I am obsessed every single day like to the point where it can get tiring yeah because i i do think about nothing else than this business and our mission and how we're going to get there so it's interesting dynamic because i love it so much that i was doing this thing today and someone said i will throw you a wild card question at the end what would you be doing if money was no issue And I was genuinely thinking and said to them, like, this is exactly what I'd be doing. And so there's an interesting dynamic that happens when you're so in love with what you're doing because it's so fun and you would want to be doing nothing else, but it can start to feel really intense. Well, I think it's intoxicating and it's very attractive, but it's also dangerous. Yeah. And you need a certain level of closeness to a problem to be really good at solving it, but you also need a fair bit of distance to have enough perspective to solve it well. (laughs) Totally. And you know what? It's just like, it's just having to try and stick it out. Like day in, day out, it is the hardest thing I have ever done in my life. It is so hard. Worse than advanced algebra? (laughs) Well, I I stopped doing maths and study humanities (laughs) classes. So I was always one of those language people. I went on to study law. I had nothing to do with numbers. But it it is unrelenting. The the experience is unrelenting, especially when it's just you trying to kick something off and create an idea out of thin air. Did um, the eco-anxiety that you're talking about ever derail you at the beginning? Like where you just thought, maybe this is too hard. Fuck it. I'm not going to do it. I mean, that's not really my personality type. Um, I think what the ability to push through that 
has been translating into for me is that I now feel like any issue is solvable or any problem has some sort of solution to it. So I even, I noticed like a lot of my own personal growth and skill set over the last 12 months is I feel like a completely different person. Like I feel like I've turned into the type of person that will just problem solve my way out of any issue, which is a good metaphor, I think, for having a business because you just come up against it all the time. You just, it, it's essentially just like this endless game of problem solving yeah, skills. Totally. Um, when, when you first went about setting up the business, what was your kind of research phase like? Um, that's a good question. I think a lot of my stuff is kind of gut feel and we'll get more to this. I think when we chat about some of our marketing and brand positioning, but I'm, I'm a very emotional, passionate person. And so I, I often think to myself, oh, I need to worry about stats and data and analytics more than I do. So in terms of trying to take a temperature check and figure out like why this was necessary, it was more from personal experience. And I think I have quite an uncanny knack for kind of taking the temperature of the culture. I've always been someone that is obsessed with culture and people and psychology and what's making them tick and what's not. And so I was probably marrying up my interest in how other people think with my own kind of concerns about where we're at with things and then pulled them together to create something that I thought catered to both groups. I'm very interested in sort of the following the gut intuition uh, vibe, but did you also kind of see a pattern where, you know, I think it's became quite noticeable maybe a few years ago where uh, the keep cup movement started mm. to really take off and people were, you know, really proudly showing their keep cups and getting, you know, small discounts and whatnot and people were more conscious of like bags and then the plastic bag laws changed and then, you know, everyone had thank you products in their bathrooms and then who gives a crap came and then everyone was using their toilet paper. Did you sort of um, feel that it, it was all kind of part of that sort of motion or movement? 100%. And I think – Whenever I'm talking to younger entrepreneurs or people who are thinking about starting a business, I will always say, like, choose something that you don't have to push against the wind to do. Like, the thing that's been interesting about my business is it's a continuation of all those trends you just mentioned, of basically finding ways to be more environmentally friendly in different parts of your life that maybe you haven't thought about before. And so the idea is that do something that everybody wants you to win at and that's what I've found to be really interesting because even when everyone wants you to be successful because they know that what you're doing has a has a greater purpose, it still feels impossible. And so I think for me, definitely piggybacking off this, you know, much greater interest in sustainability and particularly plastic because I just feel like plastic is just everywhere. And so trying to pull plastic out of your daily usage in the way that we're doing it is kind of the way that I thought that we could make a positive impact in that similar space. Yeah, it's quite brilliant. And I, I just wonder sort of with the the product, like dropping a Barocca type tablet in, in a reusable container, like when, you, when you're getting to that stage of trying to design a product to meet a solution, make a solution. Were you surprised that nothing existed like that that was sort of well marketed in our current market? There's there's two pieces to this which are really interesting. The first is is that the just add water category has always existed. 
So your grandparents use denture cleaning tablets, right? And as a kid, if you're cooking with your parents, you might use chicken stock cubes. Mm -hmm. And when I was younger, I would drink that powdered cordial that you mix up in those big, you know, canisters. Oh, yeah. So the idea of taking technology that exists already, but using it for a product category where it isn't being used yet, I thought was really interesting. So in that sense, we're not actually reinventing the wheel because we're using technology like bicarb soda and effervescence, which is already being used in other things. And now we drink it with Barocca and vitamins and all that kind of stuff. The other hard part was finding a manufacturer who could do it. So you either go to people who are already using effervescence, but aren't doing it for hand soap, or you go to people who are making hand soap, but aren't doing it in the form of a tablet. That's fascinating. So I reckon I spoke to about 95 potential manufacturers and it was, that was an example of what we're chatting about of just this like constant knockback of like, no, we don't do that. No, that's for us. You'll never find that. They don't do tablet. That's not the right tooling. And eventually, like, I got there and we got there and we made it. But, oh, my God, it was just- Which one Which one ended up being the solution? Was it the one who was making the tablet already or was it the soap manufacturer who wasn't making a tablet? It was the tablet. Okay. And the reason why it was the tablet manufacturer is because they had the right tooling to do it, which is quite specialised and it's basically like a big tablet machine and all this machinery that's built around the tablet. And then you've got to get the wrappers because each individual tablet is wrapped. And so it ended up being that, but I spoke to a lot of traditional soap manufacturers, um, but they just kind of said, look, you're uh, barking up the wrong tree with us. We can't do it. We can just make bar soap or liquid soap. Well, there's a certain determination and resolve in being knocked back 95 times um, and continuing. And I think um, <laughs> Tim Ferriss always says that he um, his first book, The 4-Hour Workweek, which is sold, it's one of the most successful books of all time. Uh, was knocked back by 26 different publishers before it was published. And I, that, that to me, I, I just like, I really love stories of, you know, I really believe this is a thing and I'm going to keep trying and I'm not going to let these setbacks sort of, you know, derail me. So kudos. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you, out. mate. Thank you. Another thing that I want to just put special attention on that you mentioned earlier is everyone winning through your product. So maybe just talk a little bit more about, how that's been valuable for you in achieving your mission and fulfilling your vision, having that sort of collective buy-in from a range of stakeholders who all want to see you win. I think that in our culture, um, particularly in business, in in kind of our culture of consumerism, a lot of people think that it's like a zero-sum game, but there's an interesting dynamic that you can create if you feel like everyone is a beneficiary of a result of your product, business, mission, whatever. So I now, having been in that space and been someone where you feel like the tailwinds are at your back because everyone wants you to be successful, I now think like, why on earth would you ever start a business where there's certain parties that don't want you to win? And so for me, I think it's about going out there now and trying to be really clear and concise about what the benefits are to each party. And I think that it's obvious. So let, let, let's, I'll give you kind of a bit of my thought process. So mm. number one is the customer. So the customer wants to get into sustainability. Everyone, everyone wants to do better, but you have to make it cheap or cheaper 
and you have to make it easy and accessible because the, f- the last thing people are going to do is kind of like take on new behaviors and new habits if they feel like there's any kind of difficulty or inconvenience. Yes, yeah. and I'll add a third element to that. The product often has to be better. Yes, than, yes. Than what's currently out there. It's like, especially with a lot of these social good businesses that are coming onto the market, once you get over the initial kind of like barrier of getting people into your product because it does good, it actually has to feel good and be efficacious. Otherwise, people just be like, ah, oh, yeah, that brand is like cool, but like I don't really like it or you know what I mean? Like it I've has had, to be I've legit. definitely had a couple of brand experiences where I thought I'll get this because this is solving an environmental or social problem and then the product's just shit Yeah, and I throw it away and I feel kind of – um I feel actually like slight resentment almost towards that brand for thinking that it's okay to produce a crap product. Yeah. Um, just just for social good. Like that really tarnishes the the whole idea of pr- producing things for a good social purpose. 100%. Yeah. It, 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 it takes away from the initial mm. ideal behind it. Mm. So you think, all right, I've been manipulated by spin and – it's a one-time buy, so it's not a sustainable business model, which means that if something's a one-time buy, it means it's probably being thrown out, right? Which means it's kind of completely antithetical to any kind of like ethical business intention, which is like get into the circular economy, start things being reused, stop chucking stuff out. So there's a lot of different elements to it. But I think what I've found in the sustainability space is people want to make a difference, but you've got to make it easy. And so I love to say that single use ain't sexy is like I, I see it as the the gateway drug into sustainability for people. So what they think is this is so easy. All right, what's the next thing? Because all it takes is just one little change and then you're like, all right, maybe I'll use compostable bin bags or maybe I'll use biodegradable glad wrap. It's just like it's step by step. And so that's been really interesting too is – kind of showing people that we can be the first stop and not the last stop on their sustainability journey. And that I think can really help with the eco-anxiety stuff because it makes it start to start feel like it's all a little bit more manageable. Yeah, and I think there's something to say, maybe a counterpoint to eco-anxiety, and that's just the, the notion of personal responsibility. Like, you know, and it's a very stoic notion, you know, like you should try and focus on doing things that are in the realm of the things that you can control. Hmm. You can't control what thousands of other people do, but every day um, you can set an example and do the right thing yourself. That's very important. Very, very. I, I think a lot more about personal responsibility now in terms of impact, just because we're in 2021, but also obviously because what I'm doing. But it is it is interesting. Like we grew up in such a throwout culture. Oh yeah. Like you just you just chuck so much shit away all the time. And we've almost I've noticed like I'm 32, so as I've kind of gotten into adulthood a little bit more, I've noticed that I have to often check myself. Do you have to brag about your young age? <laughs> Myself I'm not, and my audience don't appreciate that. <laughs> I'm not that much younger than you. Come on. And you look great for your age. I'm stop, looking at you right it, now. Stop. Go on. <laughs> and you know what I mean? Like I just have to I find myself checking myself a lot now, quite consciously. Where I'm like, oh, do I really need to use that? Like, I know it's there. Like, I can use it. Yep. But do I need to use it? So, I'd, I've noticed a big change in myself over the last 18 months. And it's just little changes that don't have to completely change your whole life, but they do add up. So, I'm very interested in sort of like the way – like. A way to watch culture change is the Keep Cup going from a novelty. And I shouldn't say Keep Cup is just the brand Keep Cup, but Frank Green as well and all the reusable, you know, coffee cups. 
to sort of go from being a nice to have and a novelty to potentially going to a cool place and being shunned for not bringing one. Mm. And that for me was a really interesting sort of moment where it's, it's almost like you feel that the sentiments almost at the supermarket as well. You know, why haven't you brought your own reusable bags and reusable products? It's, it's, you know, it's like fashion. So cultural trends or business trends or the way people use certain items in the home are just like fashion. Things go in and out of fashion. And I remember maybe five or six years ago, I was driving along and there was a talkback radio segment about how ridiculous it was that Woolworths was trialing anti um, like single use plastic ban bags in their stores, right? And all these people were calling and saying, this is ridiculous. Like, what are we meant to carry our stuff in? Like, I've been taking plastic bags, you know, to the supermarket for 40 years and seven years later or whatever, no one bats an eyelid. So these things change just the way other cultural kind of like trends change. They come and go and you just adapt. And just because something's done a certain way, it doesn't mean that we can't do things a better way. So I think that's the way that I look at all these kind of sustainability issues. Like, you know, it's it's getting a keep cup and taking it to the cafe is not the hardest thing in the world. It's so easy. You know, and I think one of the interesting things in terms of how I like to position our business is that we're never like negging or guilting people into doing the right thing because, you know, what's the last thing you want to do? When someone nags you to do something, you want to run and do the total opposite. Yeah, and it's also very ineffective to shame people into trying to do what you want them to do. Totally. Like, what, you're going to make them feel shit about themselves Mm. and then expect them to want to spend their hard-earned money to support you. Like, it's it's not going to happen. And I think for us, it's been a very, very conscious choice of not guilting people and not negging people ever. And so we will never put out a piece of communication which makes someone feel bad. The idea is that we're attracting them to our community to help solve a serious issue, but with lightness and humor. So I was giving a speech the other day and afterwards this young woman got up and she said, um, you know, do you think that you're trivializing sustainability? And if so, do you feel badly about that? There's always one, isn't there? Totally. And you know what I said to her? I was like, actually, that's really astute of you. We are trivializing sustainability and that is our strategy because the previous way of telling people how bad the problem is and expecting everyone to take action actually hasn't worked. And so my kind of style is to make something fun and enjoyable and funny and engaging so that people want to come over to your way of doing things. Yeah. And like, you know, that that's a classic honey is always attracting more people than vinegar kind of argument. <laughs> uh, and I love it. I think it makes total sense, but it, it, it gives me a nice natural segue to get into your marketing aptitude because I think you you do it exceptionally well. Um, I love the simplicity of the messaging. I think the branding is on point. I think that I get everything I need to know from very small, punchy statements. Um, how did you develop that? Is that new for you? And is it something that kind of is innate or did you have train in it? It's a good question. I think it's partly innate. Um, and then it's also partly just my obsession. And so I definitely think it's a, a marriage between those two things. So let's start with the name, right? Cause I think naming businesses is fascinating and something I'm obsessed with. So when, when I come up with the idea, I wanted to launch the business and I was in that really like intense brainstorming session, like stage, you know, how's it all going to look? I was told by quite a few people, like, don't worry about the name, name's not important. 
I now think that a business's name is the single most important piece of real estate that you could generate and it's free. So it's free to create, but it can build it endless can value. value. Yeah, yeah. Endlessly. Yeah, so huge. what what like imagine I called my business soap or soap and sons or so, soap and co would be good. I noticed and, there's a lot of and co. So there's a lot of and co's. Yep. But having the name single you saying sexy, it creates a window of engagement into the business that is almost like a it's like a hook. So it's like you're hooking people into wanting to know more. Well, what you've done is you've essentially used a slogan as your business name, which is incredible. Yeah, um, exactly. I, I I must say, when I first saw it, I thought, fuck, that's too long and it's a slogan, not a business name. But the more I saw how you were using it and just its 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 penetration into people's minds and kind of psyche, you're almost telling them a lot more than they – you don't need them to click through to the next page. They get it. Well, that's that's the thing too is you're competing against so many other brands that to engage someone enough to get them to even do the click, it needs to be compelling. And a slogan to me is interesting because a slogan says what the business does and I've always loved brands that say what they do mm-hmm. and I think I just think it's really punchy and there's a power to it. And so what, what we've tried to do is use our name as the entry point into the brand and so then everything else from that kind of stems from a similar way of communicating communicating. So I'm obsessed with simplicity. I love simplicity in brand marketing because I just think that as soon as you convolute something or make it too complicated, you lose people's interest. Yep. Even subconsciously, they're just like, ah, too hard basket, can't be bothered. And so we try and be punchy, really short and sharp, super witty, really intelligent with our copy and our content. And I think people appreciate the humor to it and the intelligence. Like, this, there's a fascinating dynamic that happens, I think, with people and brands is that say someone likes our style of communication, but they don't even, they're not even into soap or they don't need it. They're more likely to support us just because they want to reward you for being smart. Like I, as, as a consumer, have supported brands just because I think they're funny or because I think they're really smart in what they're doing. I'm like, you know what? The people behind this, they deserve my business. Have you- Okay, I'll let you finish and then I want to tell you a story about something that really impressed me that a business did. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay, I'll tell you. So um, podcast analytics is an area that's just never been solved properly. Spotify have tried to do it. Apple have tried to do it. Um, Certain hosts give you analytics dashboards, but they're all pretty useless to some degree or another. They never tell you anything that's actually that interesting. It's like 80% of people are listening to you via Apple Podcasts. Great. What do I do with that? (laughs) So so it's really like problem riddled area. Anyway, so I get this email from a guy who's who's like – uh, his name's like Asaf from podstatus.com. And he, in this email, he literally sent me podcast analytics data about how the mental wealth series that I released uh, recently was trending in Israel in two categories. Um, and, and like I was – that for me helped solve a problem of understanding impact that I just was not really aware of or attuned to. And so it's just it's just like a, a very short email. Hey, I thought you might like to know you're number 36 in social sciences in Israel, you're number eight in innovation. And um, if you want to learn more, click through here. And so I just, I wrote him back and I wrote, this is the best hook email I've seen in a long time. And I will use this service. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for creating that value. Mm. Um, but also engaging in a really clever way. So come to me with solutions that I don't know I need uh, before asking me what my problem is. Yeah. 
Totally. And and it's like, I bet you get hit up all the time by people who are wanting to try and sell you some sort of service related to the podcast, right? Yeah. Like, like, isn't our culture so bizarre that I get hit up on a daily on LinkedIn by people who are writing five or six times with no response as if writing again is going to want to make me buy what they're selling. Yeah, I'm all for cold outreach. Like I've built this business off the back of cold outreach in large part of just like, you know, going out there and making it happen. But I think we have to be sparing and really kind of like savvy with our comms. Very much so. And so I feel the exact same way with our customers, the way I would with my friends. So I'm not going to hit my mates up six times if someone doesn't write back. Like that's never happened to me, but chances are if it did, they probably don't want to talk to you. So it's the same way with customers. Like I don't need to be hitting our customers up every second day. It's like the people who are engaging with our community and want to kind of receive our content and our vibe, they're there for it. But I just think you have to be really savvy with with this stuff. How do you make decisions around that kind of thing? Because I'm sure that you get swamped with like lots of um, cold LinkedIn kind of contact emails and everything and people are sort of trying to figure out shortcuts to everything you do and asking for your advice. Do you have a system for managing that? If anyone ever asked me for my advice, I always um, try and help them because so many people have done that for me that like, it's just, you just do it. Um, in terms of like actual services, like if I think someone is really smart or really good at like getting through to me, then chances are I'll like, I'll be receptive. The thing that's so fascinating to me is how everyone is accessible so you remember when you're a kid growing up and, you know, you, there was some huge celebrity or something, this, and you're like, oh, wow, that person's otherworldly and I would never be able to get to them. Yep. Everyone is accessible now. And to me, when I think about like hustling and building the business and, you know, who I want to get to and press and media and advisors and investors and all this stuff, it's so interesting how accessible people are, whether you're yep. hitting them up on LinkedIn, Twitter, a DM, tagging them publicly, getting their email online, asking for a mutual connection. Like there's just there's just accessibility to people now that there hasn't been before. I'm so glad you said that. And, and I think people almost don't realize a lot of the time that we live in an age where you can reach anyone you want to. Um, you just have to be smart, strategic and craft a good communication. Yeah. Um, that's custom for that encounter. Yeah. And I think that's vital and, you know, what you say is so true. I remember growing up vividly like this was in the heyday when America actually was great. Uh, so like the late 90s, sort of Clinton era America. We went, we were on a family holiday to Los Angeles and um, obviously like pre-mainstream internet and all this kind of thing and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger walked down the street and uh, we managed to get a T-shirt signed by Arnold Schwarzenegger and to me, it was so otherworldly to see Arnold Schwarzenegger. And like, I was such a big fan because of all these action films that it was just like an incredible experience. But now like with social media, I'm not saying Arnold Schwarzenegger is that accessible, but there, there are people like of that kind of sphere that you really can talk to and they'll, they may write back. Um, and it's just, it's really like at your fingertips, whether you are going to do it or you're not going to do it. And um, there's a lot to say for just being confident about who you are and what you represent and your ideas and being polite and just having your go. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. It's funny you mentioned that because we've never spoken about this before and I agree with you. It's just about having a crack. Everything is about just giving it a go. So like 
I've built our business off the back of relationships like that with a multitude of people I have never had any correspondence with or have nothing to do with. So it's ama- if you make your pitch compelling enough, it's amazing how people want to support. So this is kind of going back to that point before I was saying about how like, you know, choose to do something with the wind behind your back. So, uh, you know, when I'm out there talking about trying to solve the world's single-use plastic crisis, it's a compelling um, kind of like project for people to get on board with. Yeah, definitely. You know, like they want to do good. They want to be seen to do good. They want their community to get on board. And so I've tried to marry up cool, simple, sexy aesthetics with that mission. And I, I do think that's why we've had so much success in our first year because not only do people want to do good, but they also want to look good. And I think those are two very separate things. And I think that you're allowed to want both. Totally. But, but I mean, why wouldn't you? I mean, part of the, like, I remember the way that Who Gives a Crap really took off was because you'd go to a trendy cafe, you'd go into the bathroom, and they had these beautiful toilet rolls that just represented this mission. And, and you know, then they started selling to consumers, and it's like, of course you want to have that in your house. You want the same experience where someone who's using your bathroom knows that you're trying to do the right thing. You know, it's kind of like a social norming kind of thing. Totally, and it's it's fun, Like, I'm a really, like, fun person. Like, I just, like, everything I do is because I find it fun and enjoyable and I love it. And I try, and I've tried to bring that fun into the sustainability space. And I think who gives a crap was so smart because whoever walked into a bathroom and thought that toilet paper could be made into a status symbol. Or look good. Or look good. Yeah. Like, it's literally no one except for them. It's so, it's so smart what they've done. And I think we're trying to do something similar which is turn a category of products into a status symbol for sustainability, but without compromising on design. Yep. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting kind of combination of elements coming together to try and get people onto our kind of like mission. Mm. And I just think unless you're doing it in a compelling way with beautiful products that are also good for the planet and don't cost more than the competitive brands on market, then you're kind of getting consumers into a space where, like, why would they say no? Yeah. No, you've nailed it. I I totally am with you there. One thing I want to ask you about is you've been incredibly successful at getting a lot of coverage. Every time I go online, I see um, the brand, I see you, um, LinkedIn, Twitter, name your platform. How did you manage to get so much coverage and maybe – if you've got any tips for other founders or business owners. Yeah, I love sharing tips because everyone's always got such good ideas that it just helps when you like bounce them all off each other. So I have hustled my ass off in this business. I spent the last year just thinking about nothing else almost. So where to start? So press is a really interesting one because when you have a new business, one thing that it lacks is any kind of credibility or authority in the space. And so I think so often we focus on social media, but actually traditional media, which is my background, I started working in TV and advertising, is that when you have the stamp of approval from traditional media companies, that actually gives you a lot of credibility. So I just started hitting up journalists. So every time I saw an article that was about something to do with single-use plastic of the environment, I would hit up the journalist and say, hey, I saw this article you wrote on maybe, you know, biodegradable bin liners. I know this is something you're interested in. Here's my company. Like, would you do a story on us? Now, the thing that you have to remember 
is that media needs content. Totally. They are desperate for content endlessly. It's this endless daily grind of having to produce content. Mm. And if you can hand up to them on a silver platter an interesting story, they will give you some airtime, whether it's on the radio, on TV, on, on in newspapers, in magazines, on digital platforms. So what you do is you have to weasel your way into the smaller media to then jump up the chain and leverage the bigger media. So one hack that I, I was like quite proud of is I was struggling to get onto commercial radio, but I really wanted to do radio because I thought it was an interesting platform to connect with people on. So I went to like 40 regional radio stations across Australia got onto them, and then when I did an interview with them, I asked their regional producer who, if they had a contact to the city show producer at their same affiliate network. It's just uh, I'm smiling ear to ear hearing this. This is, this is ultimate hustle. <laughs> and then, and it was, and I was really busting my ass to get these radio spots, but it worked. So what that did for me is it gave me a platform to get onto the bigger shows. And then it also gave me content that I could talk about on our platform. So when you say you see me all over social, it's because I post quotes of what the radio presenters from the Bendigo Hit FM station said about our business. But because it's part of the Hit FM network, it it looks to the world like we've been doing big media radio interviews, right? So then when it finally time comes time for us to go to the big stations, I've got all of these use cases and they're like, oh, this is legit. So multiply what I did with radio with what we've done for magazines, newspapers, and all different traditional media. And that is how we've kind of built this little kind of, I don't want to say empire, it sounds really wanky, but this little kind of like um, ability to to get press. And so- the other thing that's interesting is hit up journalists on the platforms where they don't usually get work inbounds, right? So don't hit them up on LinkedIn because they'll just think, oh, it's another, it's another random inbound. Hit them up on Instagram if they only have 800 followers, which means that if a journalist only has 800 followers, that means it's a personal account, right? So they're not getting hit up with press releases on Instagram. So if you do that, you'll stand out. This, this is purely just fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of flawed a little bit because I thought I hustled well and this is like next level hustle. Some amazing advice there and I think another good tip is um, find people where they like to be found. Yeah. So, you know, you've gone the other way a little bit and sort of being uncommon amongst the uncommon. So go maybe a bit outside the, the realm of usual expectation. But, you know, journalists spend a lot of their day on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of them have open DMs because they want stories. Yeah. So instead of trying to find an email or trying to use LinkedIn, just write them a message directly. Yeah. Um, I, I did it recently and uh, landed a fantastic one of the one of the best investigative reporters in our country um, is going to be released on this podcast series just because I thought, look, she's on Twitter. Maybe she wouldn't mind a DM. Um, and she responded and we set it up. Muzzle. Yeah, well, it, like that's one that's one success story that's kind of been my approach, but I think you're, there's a lot to learn from in, in your approach, definitely. I think that I just don't get discouraged when I get knocked back. Like I'm a bit – that's funny, I'm looking at your dog right now, but I'm a bit of a dog with a bone with these things. Yeah. It's like basically how badly do you want to succeed? 
you know? Yeah, yeah but, but but also like it's also like people who are starting out and who are young and at business and a bit green, they don't realise that it's like a muscle. Like rejection is like a muscle that you have to train and the, the more you get okay with hearing a no, the less it affects you in any way. So like I reach out to people all the time and maybe – probably 20%, 30% of them either don't respond or respond negatively. Yeah. Um, and it, it registers no flicker in my emotional or determinative kind of radar. Yeah. And I think once you have more going on to, you know, at the start when you're starting out, the no's feel really significant because they're taking up a bigger percentage of your energy. Yeah, that's Whereas right. Whereas when you're just firing on all cylinders, a no's just like, cool, another no, let's keep going. And the big learning curve for me is that, Everything doesn't work. Nothing works. Like it honestly, genuinely feels like nothing works the first time. I'm talking about, you know, what ad creatives to use. I'm talking about what media you approach, your product development, whatever, packaging, branding, nothing works. And so it it would almost be weird to me now if things were too easy because you're constantly coming up against it. Um, and another interesting experience I had is so I went on Ticker – um, news, which is a streaming platform for under 45s. And I did an interview there. Um, and I just, it felt really startupy and really new and young. And I thought I could do this. I could interview other people about their experiences. So afterwards I went to the head of Ticker News and I said, Hey, I'd love a show. Like, could you give me a show? I would love to do this. And so now I've started putting myself in a position where I'm also interviewing people like like you're doing now and I'm about to launch a podcast as well. And that has given me a, a real ability to put myself out there even more yep. and try and leverage that platform to promote the, the causes that I'm passionate about, which is things like single-use plastic and, and how we can get there with our business. So I think that there's no multitude of ways to promote. I think there's a fine line between being self-promotional and promoting things that are actually important. Like I think philosophically, I think a lot about a lot about social media. So LinkedIn is a good example because I think like partly what on earth are we all doing? Like it is just complete madness. This endless cycle of self-promotional nonsense mixed in with like just weird ha- happy work anniversary. Yeah, it's just it's just weird. Like it's just a culture that I've never really been that into to be honest. Like yep. I think it's really odd and I don't know where the cycle stops and I think what I've tried to do is be really strategic about leveraging platforms like that for, in a good way but trying not to buy into the nonsense. Totally. And that's that's exactly the way to do it. Like link I find it funny that you've said that cuz LinkedIn is like my my preferred social platform. Mm. And what I like about it is that if you cut through all the noise, you can just reach directly out to people who inspire you and say, Hey, wouldn't it be great to connect? Do you want to have a coffee? Or like, like the, the barrier to connection is very low yeah, um, because it's a professional network. So people are on there for professional purposes. And if you're contacting them about a professional purpose that they have or you have or helping them excel in their professional purpose, like the intentions are really clear. Whereas for me, I think about other platforms like Twitter and Instagram and I think what, like, what are the motives at play? Like there's almost too many, it's a panopticon of different motives at play and intentions. And I find it like too hard to figure out what people would like. I don't get the dance. I see the dance, but I don't actually get it. And I feel very like 
raw trying to engage with it. It's a it's a good point. I think you have to find the platform or platforms that suit your personality and what you're trying to do and work to that. One point on LinkedIn that's been interesting when we're talking about, you know, hacks and lessons is I think LinkedIn is the single most underutilized social platform that we have access to Agreed. because people post shit and it means that if you post anything that's mildly interesting or gauging, it cuts through. And so I've had a really interesting time playing around with what works on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. And the reason why you see me on LinkedIn so much is because I think I, I do a good job of putting up stuff that's different. Oh, 100%. There's a, there's a real chance on LinkedIn to bring a unique – like that. that's why no one else is really – not very few people originally were promoting a podcast on LinkedIn. Mm. So that's why I started doing it and um, it found a home there. And like that's our most popular social network. So it's it's been an interesting journey. Um, hey, I wanted to ask you, changing tack slightly, about social impact and you, you – Rattled off a really good number earlier about the amount of bottles that you've saved. Was it 135,000? 125. 125,000. So that's quite amazing. How do you plan to capture the impact that you're having now and into the future and sort of to tell that story? Um, The answer is I don't know yet. I think that as the business evolves and we figure out what our greater like ultimate impact can be, we, we will know. I think right now we have the intention that that is what we want to try and do. So it was interesting. I was on a panel with thank you, thank you and who gives a crap last week. And we were talking about ethical business and impact. And it's just interesting seeing companies that are, you know, five or 10 years ahead of us still figuring out what they're doing and how they're doing it and, and how they're going to position themselves. Mm. Now they're, they're different to us because they're so much further progressed, but it kind of, it just made me be able to chill out a little bit and just think, look, it, it, it's always changing. So I'll give you another good example, right? So you know Tom's Shoes? Yeah. So yeah. Tom's Shoes were at the genesis of this, you know, social business for good kind of movement. The one for one model. Exactly. So 15 years ago, they started, you buy a pair of shoes, they give a pair of shoes to someone in need, right? Um, about two months ago, um, it didn't work for their business model anymore. Right. So you were dealing with COVID, you were dealing with the global financial situation, and one for one did not work. So they have pivoted and they're now donating a third of all their profits to what they're calling like grassroots activist organizations. Yep. Right. So anti gun violence, um, LGBTQ rights, um, racial inequality organizations, um, fighting famine and hunger, these sorts of things. So I think what's interesting is if you look at businesses that have some kind of social good element to them is that it's always changing and evolving. So at the moment, we say our mission is to save 5 million single-use plastic bottles from landfill. Now, I actually think that that is a milestone that we can get to. After that, I don't know, but it will be interesting to see as our business evolves how our impact can evolve. So whether that's donating to charity, one for one, donating a portion of profits, like there's so many different ways to cut it. I find it fascinating looking at so many different businesses and how they're doing that, Mm. and I don't know which model works best. I wouldn't purport to. I don't think I've been doing it for long enough. To, to know well it, it's like the conversation that we had before the podcast when we we were kind of just being a little bit brazen and just like tell all about human behavior and really in entrepreneurship and the space that we're operating in a lot of the time we don't know the answers and nobody else knows, knows the answers either and i think we have to step into that space and kind of start to be a bit more open about that 
Totally. I think when you start a business, it can feel, I'll speak in my own personal experience, it felt intimidating because I didn't know what I was doing and you think everyone else does. And then it quickly kind of occurred to me that actually no one knows what they're doing, especially at the start. And everybody is making it up as they go along. And I think I've chilled out a lot in the last year by kind of not putting, like I'm someone who's like putting a lot of pressure on myself to try and like, you know, reach our goals. And now it's just a bit more like, all right, I don't know some stuff and I'll survive and I'll surround myself with a great advisory board and great mentors and people who know how to do it and how to help. And I think that it's important to talk about this stuff because I, I, I honestly cannot believe how much stuff I have screwed up. And it's an interesting dynamic because you're out there in the world and your business is going well and the world thinks it's all good. And it is, but you know that behind the scenes, you're just screwing so much stuff up. You've never done it before. It's like you're in over your head half the time. And I started having some really interesting experiences with people in my peer group and other founders and entrepreneurs where we were just having like really good conversations about like how hard this is. Cause it is, it is so hard. It's, it's so hard to make a business successful or it's so hard to make any idea successful or any ambition or goal. And I've been thinking a lot about why now at a very base level, asking people for money was never going to be easy. You know, so the thing that our culture values most in some ways, which is slightly depressing to say, but is money. And so having any kind of entity, which is asking people to give up their money is going to be hard. Like if you go to someone on the street and say, give me a hundred bucks, it's not going to be easy to get it out of them. Mm. So doing it online by serving them an ad and telling them to buy your product is equally difficult. I think what is interesting is not only you asking them to give you your money, you're also asking them to buy into your idea. So it's twofold about why that might be difficult. And so that's not the only reason, but I think that having a business is just so difficult. And there's a lot, I could, I could speak about this forever because it's something I, I just have become so interested in and passionate about talking about is the difficulties of having a business. But the, the more I've progressed with my business and spoken to people who, who have progressed with theirs, it's become really apparent that there is a commonality in the difficulty of having a business and being a founder and being an entrepreneur and not taking a salary and putting your neck out on the line and, you know, even just putting yourself out there to be criticized is, is, feels vulnerable. You know, there is a vulnerability to this, which I think you start to feel more comfortable with, but it's very different to never putting your neck out there to be judged, you know? Yeah. And like, just to sort of add to the difficulty of what you're talking about, like imagine before you start knowing that 90% of, uh, or nine out of 10 startups or businesses that are trying to launch will fail within their first year. So it's like, it's just a total shit show. Like you're going into the unknown with like strong devotion and dedication to this vision, knowing that almost no one succeeds at making that vision profitable. And then you're supposed to just be fine. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, it's a really interesting way of putting it. And I think you're right. It's like there is a, there's an inherent lack of psychological safety there. Yeah. And I think that's intersex bravery, courage, but also vulnerability and, openness and I think one thing I've loved about the startup sector and the social entrepreneurship is the openness we're now seeing with founders sort of talking about some of these challenges and um, mm. it just gives a really rich 
texture to the landscape and it helps everyone in the end. Yeah, it's refreshing because it can feel very lonely. Um, just because you're in it alone and the pressures are unique and you've put all your money into it. Like I'm bootstrapping our business. I haven't taken on any funding. So each time like you put more money and you're like, oh shit, like what's happening? Like, is this, is, is this going to, is this going to end well? So there is a unique connection that you have with other people who are doing it and you can form some really awesome friendships and the, entrepreneurial fraternity, especially in the direct-to-consumer e-commerce space in Australia, is epic. And there's a whole bunch of people doing awesome things who are helping each other. And it's just the same. If you work at a big company, you do stuff in teams and you help each other out. And in this space, I think the founder relationships and dynamic are awesome. And I lived in New York for four years and did a lot of work in New York and LA as, as a founder as well. And it's the same vibe. Like, yes, it's competitive and it's bloody hard, but there's great support systems and support networks. And I tell you what, there is nothing better than sitting down with some people who have a business and just talking shop and you feel like you are talking another language. Yeah. And it is just, it's like anyone in any trade or any business needs that ability to just like decompress and download yep. and uh, like we're no different and it just, it, it's so good. Uh, I like don't even have a business anymore, but I love stepping back into that mindset. So I really love having that talking shop conversations with founders and entrepreneurs as well. It sort of takes me to a special place of like shared experience. Yes. And it's funny you say that because I've been, I've been thinking about why the, the, the founder journey is unique and it's like, you know, when you have an idea and you, know what all the pieces of the puzzle look like when they're together, but no one else can see it yet. Like you have a puzzle and no one knows what the front cover of the box is. Yep. It's like this process of trying to fit together these puzzle pieces that feel so disparate and disconnected, but so close to all fitting together perfectly that if you could just get this done or just get that deal or just land that, it would all be perfect and you can see it. You can see exactly what it is. Like You know the vision. Like You know this could be amazing. You know this could be in every house or on every computer or whatever. And that is the thing that everyone is dealing with the internal puzzle or the internal chess game of you knowing that all the pieces can come together perfectly. And it's almost like the anxiety of knowing if it's ever going to happen, even though you know it can happen. And it's just this fascinating, fascinating roller coaster of ups and downs. And these are all metaphors that like we've heard before. And the reason why is because they're true, <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. Um, this has been an amazing chat. One thing I want to double back on was you mentioned you're going to start a podcast. That's very exciting. Yes. I reckon by the time this goes live, the podcast might have launched already. But <laughs> but if not, do you want to kind of drop any hints or ideas about what it's going to be? Yeah. So it's funny because I haven't told you, but it's exactly tied into what we've been talking about. So I have come to adore um, my catch-ups with other founders and entrepreneurs, like I was saying. And I felt like people are bullshitting each other too much, especially on social media about everything being perfect and we raised this much. And the conversations that I was really getting the most out of were the behind the scenes convos. So the ones where people are cutting through all of that crap and talking about the stuff that, that's actually happening. So the failures and the setbacks. So the podcast is going to be called Failure is Sexy. 
So it's a combination of my love for my business and trying to bring that kind of sexy brand into it. And then also my love of having like substantive conversations with people. And I think that the most interesting conversations are when you talk to the hugely successful people about all the stuff that they've stuffed up. So that's what the podcast is about. It's about people who you see as, you know, holier than thou, and then talk about all of the difficulties that they've come into contact with. So whether they're business people, entrepreneurs, CEOs, athletes, journalists, movie stars, I'm going to be chatting to famous and high-profile Australians about all the mistakes they've made to to get to their success. It's, it's bloody brilliant. <laughs> I hope so. How can people uh, connect with your wonderful products and yourself and learn more? So they can go to our website, which is singleuseaintsexy.com. I've got to enunciate that because it's a bit of a, a, a mouthful. Does an apostrophe go in there? No, nah, nothing. Just okay. singleuseaintsexy. Yep. Um, or they can find us on Instagram at singleuseaintsexy. Um, they can also watch me on Ticker. So I host a show on um, tickernews.codes, a streaming platform for under 45s, um, and it's a live interview show. So each week um, we interview a different founder or entrepreneur who's doing something in the Aussie market to make the world a greener place. That's, that's amazing. And so if somebody wanted to touch base with you personally, LinkedIn or? Hit me up. My email is josh at singleuseaintsexy.com or they can give me a call on my mobile. It's 0457-739-048. Now I give my number out all the time everywhere and the most amazing things happen from it and people just hit me up or text me or call me or whatever. I'm, I'm stunned. So that's 0457 0457- Seven three nine zero four eight, and feel free to hit me up. You've just floored me. Like <laughs> it's probably the second or third time you've floored me in this conversation, but that's um, that's truly fantastic. So you heard it first here. Hit him up on his mobile or on his email or wherever else you might find him. Thank you so much for joining me, Josh. Thank you, mate. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.